You're listening to the Sexual Wellness Sessions with Kate Moyle. Today's episode is brought to you by iPlaySafe app. iPlaySafe is a smart way to manage your sexual health. You can download the free app and order your iPlaySafe box, a home STI testing kit. Your results will be sent directly to the app along with an iPlaySafe badge verifying your sexual health status. It's then up to you when, with whom and whether you share it with other people on the app. Today we'll be talking about the topic of consent, something that's been off the curriculum and out of the conversation for too long. And I really wanted to host a conversation around this topic, exploring what it means and how it can be given and received. So for this episode, I invited sex and relationships educator, podcaster and author of Can We Talk About Consent, Justin Hancock, onto the podcast, as I was really interested by the fact that in his book, he discusses how consent is about freedom, choices and agreement and how it's not just about sex. So Justin, I guess a big part of this for me is that you've just written a book about consent and I think a lot of people will be wondering how you write a whole book on this as a topic because it's often, I suppose, promoted as being quite linear or quite simple. So I guess I'd love to kick this conversation off by defining the difference between what we think consent is and what it actually is and by exploring what some of the common misconceptions about consent are. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, we don't need more books. Everyone just buy my book. There's only, <laughs> only one book. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're right. It's a very, very big topic. Um, I think that uh, the attempts to oversimplify the conversation are kind of understandable. Like the attempts to oversimplify consent. Um, you know, when people say it's uh, yes means yes and no means no, and that is always true and that's all it is. Um and that it's just about uh, an agreement to do a thing or allowing someone to do a thing. They come from like a well-meaning place, but they are also just not that useful. They don't really teach people about what consent feels like. Um, they don't give people a mm. lot of consent education. Doesn't really tells people what consent is, but it doesn't give them any tools to actually practice it. Um, also, it doesn't really even model consent as well. It doesn't even give people the opportunity to learn about consent or not. You know, often uh, consent, there's an irony that um, that young people in school being, you know, made to watch the teen consent video isn't very consensual. Um, and the teen consent video mm. is a really good case in point here is that, that we think that we can, that we can simplify um, consent in sex and relationships down to an animated video about whether giving some, about giving someone a cup of tea and, and uh, and if someone doesn't want that tea, they don't want the tea. Or if they're asleep, they don't want tea. It's like, you know, there have been several attempts to oversimplify it, and I can understand why, but it it, it doesn't serve adults or young people uh, properly to have that oversimplification. Mm. And why do, you, why do you think we have oversimplified it? Is it confusion? Is it fear about getting it wrong? Is it misunderstanding? What do you think's behind that? I think... First of all, people don't want to reflect on what this means for them. Um, people don't want to reflect on to what extent uh, their everyday life has a great deal of consent in it. I think that there's also this idea that all you need to do is to get into a relationship with someone, and if that relationship is good, then everything under that and within that relationship is consensual. We know that definitely is not the case. Um, 
uh, with mm. yeah, high cases of intimate partner violence, which have been going up during the pandemic. Um, and we know that actually uh, most women's experience of sexual violence happens within the home. Um, so that's just one example. So I think that mm. it's a tricky topic for a lot of people to interrogate, but also a lot of people have experienced non-consensual sex as well. Um, and so it's, it's, there's a lot of trauma around it, as well as there potentially being a lot at stake for people to think about this stuff. Um, so I can understand why for young people we kind of want to say, we want to put that to one side and say, but you just need to learn that uh, consent is about someone, someone has to say yes, or maybe someone saying enthusiastically saying yes, uh, and that, or, or teaching people how to say no. I can understand why people do it, but it doesn't work. Um, it, it doesn't work for several reasons, which we can go into. But what I try to do in the book uh, is to reframe consent and to to take the legal definition of consent, which is um, about freely agreeing to, to do something and having the capacity to choose to do that thing. So if we explore consent with the mm-hmm. lens through the lens of freedom and agency and agreement, then it becomes this bigger, more useful kind of topic where we can start to think about what it means to have our own desires, what it means to tune into our desires and what those are and how do we navigate those desires and choices with someone else, even if we're not 100% sure that's exactly what we want. Um, so that's why mm. I kind of use lots of everyday analogies throughout the book as well uh, as a way of kind of reflecting on how we can incorporate these kinds of ideas into our day-to-day practice, which is just good for us on a, on a daily basis as well, but also something we can learn from when it comes to sex. Mm. And when you say freely, in legal terms, that means, for example, without coercion, mm-hmm. um, without bribery. Yeah, I mean, the, um, I mean, one of the issues with only having a legal definition of consent and only talking about legal definitions is that people get obsessed about whether what they've done has been a crime or not. Uh, and I think we need to aim a bit higher for that, mm-hmm. right? You know, we need to think about what is ethical. Mm-hmm. Um and how we can give people mm-hmm. as many choices as possible. So if someone's in the position of, what one of the points I make in the book is that if someone's in the position of having to say no, you've not given them enough choices. Like, we should just be opening up everyone's ability to, to choose what it is that they might want to do or might not want to do or might want to do in the middle of those things or might want to do if they've got a bit more information about it or might want to do if they do something else first or do something else after. You know, it's... Um, so and also I think that the, the the pressures that make consent difficult are not just coming from a partner, although that is um, that uh, is one of the key pressures that which we'll perhaps talk about in a bit. But another pressure that comes from us is that comes from that comes to us around consent is from society in general. So um, the whole mm. idea about what it is that we should be doing in any given situation, which I call. Uh, a should story in the book, but I guess we could also call it like uh, sexual scripts or gendered norms or uh, hegemonic ideas of, that come from sex and relationships education. That, you know, we have very strong social scripts for even what sex is, um, mm, uh, or even one of the one of the ways I look at it is that if we think about what the, the strong societal norms are for a greeting, 
And in this country, there's a strong societal norm is it's a handshake, right hand, medium firmness, up and down, some eye contact, but not too much. And then you're done. Like, where do we learn these social scripts from, right? Uh, and how can we instead reflect on those and set and just pause and say, well, okay, well, this is a social script that we're doing here. What is it that we might actually want to do? And so all of these things make it much harder for us to um, to tune into what our desires and wishes are, which is really, I think, what where we're bringing more consent in. We're able to do that for ourselves, but to do that with another person um, whilst also navigating the, the complex power imbalances that happen throughout. Mm, and I think it's something that I talk about in therapy a lot is where do our ideas come from? Where do our narratives come from? Where do our beliefs come mm. from? And so often we know they're not actually ours, but they're the ones we've been given or told or we've received them both both objectively and subjectively. Mm. They're not always explicit things that are said to us, mm. but they might be things that we have assumed or that we've taken to be true or we've seen modelled. And I think, as you said, those shoulds, you know, should stories, I think there's so many shoulds when it comes to sex. Mm. And there's... Sex education is something you mentioned there. Why does consent, why has it not been a standard part of sex education as our curriculum? And I know we we see that um, it's being included now with um, the September kind of 2020 changes that came in and it's something that has been discussed and it's much more this sexual and relational focus rather than the just the reproductive side or the um, sexual health side of sex mm. but why if consent and you I'd argue enthusiastic consent is such a critical pillar of sexuality has it not been put where it needs to be which is as a an important part of the conversation of how we do sex mm. um I'm not such a fan of the term enthusiastic consent I have to say but that, that might be something we could come come on to later but Ooh, yeah. I think that um the reason why consent hasn't really featured a great deal in the in the curriculum is um and uh, it is to do with what I was talking about earlier that we uh, that we haven't really the fear of getting it wrong I think there's a fear of getting it wrong but it's also just the fear of not wanting to unpack this ourselves you know the the history of sex education is that the people doing the sex education are usually just leaning on their own sex education so this intergenerational sex education is doing a number on all of us because none of us were taught about consent in sex education really probably None of us were taught, uh, were even modelled consent, and many of us have experienced non-consensual stuff from childhood. So it's just not something mm. that's been interrogated. Um, also, I just think that um, there was some stuff in that... So in terms of the, the government guidelines on sex and relationships education, they have just been updated recently, and the the... the they're not it's not brilliant it's not like the holy grail of documents in fact it's in large in large part a lot of the curriculum is pretty unhelpful i think um but mm. uh the the key change is that relationships and sex education is going to be uh, become mandatory in english schools um it's that's very it's I, even that is not exactly accurate but for me to go into what the legal implications of this are so complicated which yeah. goes to show just how what a mess this whole thing is 
But the key is that it's not coming with any funding. It's not coming with any um, training for teachers, really. It's not coming with um, any resource to help. And it's it's happening at a time in the sector. It's happening at the worst time in the sector where there has never been a time where there have been so few people uh, with the capacity to deliver any of this work um, that I'm just more broadly, like materially, uh, I'm, I'm not very optimistic about whether things are going to change in schools a great deal, which is why, you know, that kind of frustration leads me to doing so much work online where young people can just access my website um, directly. That's mm. ishuk.com. Um, and so that's, yeah, there's a frustration there for me around that, but um, certainly it's an opportunity for uh, there to be better consent education. Uh, I just wonder whether it's going to happen. Mm. And I, sp- I suppose it's a frustration that so many of us as people in the sexual wellness kind of field have, isn't it? Is there's this kind of constant battle against where we think we need to be and where we're at. And I think that means we're all striving to be better I suppose but I mean what do you think the big questions that we need to be asking ourselves about consent are Uh, I suppose that in itself is a huge question isn't it but I guess you know even for me I suppose it feels so context dependent it feels like there is no one-size-fits-all approach it feels like things can change at any time and I guess maybe that's what scares people about these kind of conversations but if people are wanting to explore the topic of consent a bit further you know what what are the questions they need to be kind of asking themselves first rather than asking other people or kind of thinking about in a in a bigger wider way well i kind of look at i break this down in the book uh to um self-consent consent with others consent in groups and consent in the world so how can we bring in more consent on all of those levels? So I start off by talking about self-consent and my experience of going to eat a pizza when um, I first was uh, got told that uh, I was going to write a book about this, um, which in itself sounds non-consensual. They invited me to say, would you like to write a book? And I said, yeah, that would be great. And so I went off for a, to have pizza for lunch to celebrate. And I was looking at the menu and it's one of those, I won't name the place, but it's one of those pizza places which has a very um, strict idea, a very narrow idea about what should be on a pizza, right? You know, you're getting the kind of authentic pizza experience, you know, which is secretly what I want. But I was looking at the list and I was like, well, <laughs> two of those are a bit boring. I'm allergic to mushrooms, so that takes another two out. So my choice is between two pizzas. And I knew that that was what it was going to be. But, you know, my choice is between two pizzas. And then I was thinking, well, okay, well, what if I was a vegetarian who was also allergic to mushrooms? Uh, what if I was gluten intolerant? What, let's think about my choices here. So there's a strong should story going on mm. about what I should be having for my for my celebratory pizza lunch. But also my choices are restricted by what it is that I can eat. You know, if... if, if um, if there's only one thing that I can choose in the pizza restaurant, then my choice becomes, do I want to eat or not? Which is not much of a choice at all. And it brings in all these ideas you were talking mm. about around coercion and things, right? And all of the other things at stake uh, for us around that that make us feel coerced into doing something on a daily basis. So that's just one thing. Like just learning to, learning to think about our agency and our decision-making choices and to think about where they're restricted, but also um, to think about how 
the restrictions placed on us, but also the should stories, make it harder for us to tune into what it is that we actually might want. So then I say, well, what if there was a place called Infinity Pizza, where you could choose whatever base you wanted, gluten-free, non-gluten. Uh, uh, you could have any shape you wanted. Actually, I might have drawn a line at triangles. I might have said, no, you can't have triangles. Or you can have, you know, <laughs> the, the, whole, the, the whole world has their own version of pizza. You know, there are Ethiopian pizzas, there are Japanese pizzas, uh, there are like South African pizzas. You know, you can have any kind of pizza. You can have any topping you want, any food stuff you could put on this. And then, you know, what? how would you choose your pizza then? And actually, it's like, well, I don't know what I want. And so what do we... Too much choice. Yeah, well, what, yeah how can we... How can we think about desires when there are limitless amounts of possibilities that we might have? Mm. And so, so even just this one, like very simple example, shows how tricky this stuff is, and how a lot of our ideas of consent are kind of like I don't want to quite chomp to consent, you know, manufactured, but like you know, we we often don't get given the amount of. Um, freedom to choose as we might think and freedom to choose is what consent is all about so that's a big question think about how we might begin to tune into our desires but another one is like just to are we paying enough attention to the process like why is it why are we skipping over conversations about um choices to do with sex where we might have where we might have these conversations if it was to do with anything else like if i have no conversation about what to watch on tv later you don't just like put on the same thing every time, right? And then expect the other person to like it. You know, we have the, we do have conversations. Are you up for a drama? Are you up for something silly? Uh, are you up for watching something serious? What are we able to concentrate? Or do you want to watch something mm. where we can just scroll what through our phones? Yeah, what's your mood now? What mood do you want to be in after? You know, like, we, we can have those conversations. We just don't, we just are trained not to have them around sex. And this is the thing with sex is that, you know, there's just so much at stake around sex and it's been given so much meaning in our mm. lives. And because it's meant to be, you know, if the idea that if it if you have to talk about it, then it's not like meant to be this whole idea of, you know, everything within within, within under the umbrella of a relationship is meant to be magical. And you're meant to just know what your partner wants. It's like, come on. So it's just that we are trained not to speak about this stuff. You know, we're, we're, let's think about why it is that we're trained not to be able to ask for what our desires are and shamed about asking for what it is that we might want. So let's think about, mm. you know, where that I was going to say, and then, yeah, shamed, shamed when we do ask. Yeah, exactly. So in a way, it's that stay silent. Yeah. It's that stay silent kind of implicitness, um, which feels like it might be encouraged yes and that always ends up benefiting the people who are most privileged in any or have the most power in any in any relationship mm. because because shame is not fairly distributed in society right so some people feel more able feel some people have more agency more decision making power than others and so and shame acts as this kind of this uh this barrier this like uh, a muffler for people to express what it is they want or to even tune into what they want and so we're left with these kinds of uh these sexual stories these sexual scripts these should stories that we have that often are you know often are rubbish for people so within heterosexual sex you know the idea that um in Catherine Angel's excellent book that's just come out, uh, Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again, she talks about how, you know, for men, bad sex is not having an orgasm. For women, bad sex is it being painful. Uh, and so and mm. we unpack that a little bit. When our, when our should story about sex is that it is about penis and vagina sex, 
uh, and we're not even talking about this as just an option that we might enjoy as much as we might enjoy other different kinds of sex on on a on a level playing field uh, of there being different kinds of sex that different people might enjoy or not because the should story is that um that sex is about penis and vagina sex, but also the should the other should stories there are about that men are meant to be active in pursuing sex, that men are always meant to be interested in sex, uh, that um, men are interested in sex and women are interested in love, and that it's something that women are supposed to put up with in order to maintain mm. a relationship. It's all like horrendously toxic stories, should stories mm. um, that that form the basis of, form the background of all of the non consensual stuff that happens. Um, you know, and obviously in my mm. book, I'm explaining this to teenagers, but, um, you know, this is something that we should all be reflecting on more. And it's, and so you can already see that this is a huge topic, um, because we have to also bring in, uh, ideas about what sex is, uh, ideas around agency, um, power, gender, uh, gender stories, um, and how we navigate that in a society, which, which, doesn't want to increase our freedom to choose you know that 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 limits Mm. our freedom to choose obviously we can't as when i talk about society and freedom to choose i'm not talking about hey we should all be um able to do whatever whatever it is we like you know we should be able to you know yeah but our freedoms are always restricted shouldn't be boundaryless or but i i often um look at resources i mean resources like yours but resources that are aimed at younger Mm. people or teenagers for me as a therapist, I want to see what the people working with younger generations are doing and how they're doing mm. it. Because I guess it's fundamentally what most adults also <laughs> they missed out on. Mm-hmm. And so I quite often recommend resources like yours to my clients, whether they're in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, because there's there's something about the idea of like meeting us where we're at and we carry the messages with us throughout our lives mm-hmm. even if even if critically as an adult we can think that what we thought when we were 15 you know now doesn't make sense mm-hmm. now isn't logical mm-hmm. now is obviously not true mm-hmm. irrelevant of that when we were 15 that's what we thought mm-hmm. was going on and we can carry those feelings with us we can carry those experiences with us mm-hmm. and i think that that can often create a conflict for people in their sex lives because, you know, I hear people say this kind of phrase all the time in my therapy room, like, I feel really silly for saying this, but I, this is how I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I know this sounds stupid, but mm-hmm. this is how I feel. Yeah. It's because it's that battle of kind of emotional and logical as well. But when we're talking about sex as a topic, and you consent kind of coming into that, it is emotional. You know, we 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 can't, really untangle it all and I think that's why as well we we have this whole space I don't know space sphere um around the topic because Mm. we're never able to separate completely the mind and body aspects of it and the psychological and the physical It, it bridges both the psychological and the physical, whether we like it or not, whether we say, do you know what, I only have sex with people I'm completely unemotionally attached to. 
it's just not for me or I only like to have a sexual experience with people I trust or those are two very very basic examples Mm. but psychologically we are involved in those experiences Mm. and what we're doing whether we think we're involved with the other person or not there is still something going on Mm -hmm. for us yeah yeah big time in the first book that I wrote with my uh, colleague Meg John Barker uh, enjoy sex how and if you want to i love that book thank you we talk about how sex is biopsychosocial um that sounds like well, it sounds mm. like it's going to be quite an academic book it's really not it's uh, it's about that thing of the biology and the psychology and the sociology all have this kind of all, all not only are interlinked but they all kind of feed off each other and so it's really important to be able to unpack mm. that and and so and this is the just going i guess going back to what you're saying about um, the resource that I'm creating for young people is that because they're they're young people, like they, I want them to get, I want them to, I guess with all the work that I do is that I want them to feel like they have the tools to further understand and to f- further critique something because I don't think that everybody's body is different and everyone's experiences are different. Everyone's motivations for sex and relationships are different. So we can't just offer like a one size fits all approach to anything, but it's about equipping people with the tools to navigate all of these really complicated things. And so, and that's not to say that I want to overcomplicate a topic neither, but I also don't want to patronize young people and say, you know, I have all the answers. This is how you need to do something. And sadly, I think a lot of resources, Mm -hmm. resources for, teenagers do that and mine don't which is why a lot of adults like my resources too is just because i'm explaining something that a 14 year old might understand doesn't mean that it's not complex um and and it shouldn't be it shouldn't not be complex because um you know if i were to say to a young man all you have to do is to ask uh you know ask your girlfriend what it is that she wants and then just do that and that's what consent is and off you pop you know like that's that that young man wouldn't be very happy with my advice and nor with the young woman who is now being mm. asked to suddenly come up yeah. with all of her desires <laughs> where society has said to her for all of her life, you're not meant to talk about what it is that you want. What you're supposed to do is do what men want. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, we, so we, in this, it has to be uh, complex, but written in, but also accessible. That's the, that's what I try to do. And I think that, um, mm. that's something that I think we could all reflect on a bit, I think. Yeah. And in, advance of us and you know you and I did an Instagram live about this topic and about your book coming out not that long ago but kind of in advance of this I was researching um articles and pieces on other you know what people are saying about consent and I think consent in the media is something I want to come back Mm -hmm. to but found an article which was like using different phrases about how um we can ask for consent and a big part of the conversation and one of my guests actually um for this series is the intimacy coordinator from normal people mm-hmm. and okay. one of the articles that I found was saying how in normal people what they liked seeing was there was a conversation you know kind mm-hmm. of like is this okay mm-hmm. do you want to carry on shall we stop and yeah. um some of the phrases I saw were, are you sure you're ready for this do you want to have sex mm-hmm. how far do you want to go mm-hmm. how do you like that mm-hmm. are you all right do you w- want me to keep going do you want me to stop mm-hmm. and I was thinking these are these are things that we would do phrases that we would use in the rest of our life without even thinking mm-hmm. as a parent I think I I use phrases like this kind of all the time like are you all right do you want to keep going do you want to stop from everything to 
you know, if we're walking somewhere to if we're going somewhere, if we're um, on the school run, if we're eating, mm-hmm. drinking water. <laughs> Literally, I was thinking these are things, phrases, you know, they're kind of non-specifically sexual ones, obviously, that I'm using mm-hmm. constantly with no conscious awareness or me thinking about having to use them. Yeah. So in I think and I think what's important about it is for people to feel equipped in understanding that those kind of things like checking in I suppose are also a part of that but also that the consent is an ongoing conversation it's not just have I checked yes the box is ticked good off we go and I know that's something that you you feel strongly about as well yeah so I've uh, got a few things to say about this um I think this kind of um I think conversations like uh like Connor had in Normal People. I've written a sex education guide to normal people available at my website, bishuk.com. Um, I think those conversations were good, an example of how, uh, of, of the kinds of things that we could be talking about. But let's, first of all, unpack the idea that, um, you know, we we all learn that sex is too awkward to talk about. And 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 where do we learn that <laughs> idea from? Yeah. And it's not even, it's even something that we're like, that we still have today. Like who can talk frankly about sex to each other? Like, and you know, we have to recognise that this comes from sex education. Like, it comes from both our for- formal and informal sex education when we're growing up. We're told not to talk about it. And it's important. I think it's getting, in, getting to the stage where we need to interrogate, well, why is it we're still being taught that sex is too awkward to talk about? Like, who benefits from that, right? I think that's an important convers- like political mm. conversation and we need to be having around that. Because why, sh- as you say, why should it be too awkward to talk about when we can talk about our choices and how and how we're responding to everything else? But anyway, but the the other the one of the one of the reasons why yeah I think it's good that we should be able to talk about this. And as Connor was doing in all people, you know, how's this? He said, if it hurts, we can stop, which is like the first time I've ever heard yeah. that in in media. Um, because there's always this assumption mm-hmm. that uh, that first time sex always hurts for the woman because a first time sex is penis and vagina, and the outdated uh, ideas that we have around the hymen and all that stuff, which are completely wrong, um, and we don't teach young women how to prevent first time sex from being painful. They're just told expect it, and so it becomes this uh, self fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. Um, but in those instances, in normal people, it is all it is Connor who knows that he has to take the lead on this. Like Connor knows that he is the person who is given the agency in that situation because men are meant to be able to be confident around seeking sex. He knows that he he knows that men. You know what terms do we use to describe men who are interested in sex? What terms do we use to describe women who show interest in sex? They're very different. And so we live in a society where mm. um, Marianne, uh, he knew he knew that Marianne was likely to experience some sexual shaming about her choices. Again, why do we have that? Where do they come from? Why in twenty twenty one do we still do we still have this in society? So he's having to do the asking, but his questions are, um, "How's this?" or "Is is this okay?" And so her answers can only ever be yes or no. And so again. Instead of so, he's even then kind of in on that micro level. He's only giving questions where there can be two possible answers, which isn't really maximizing Marianne's choices. Like, uh, how's this feeling? Or this is feeling good. How's how's this feeling for you? Uh, opens up the possibility for more responses than just yes or no. 
But the other thing just to say about this as well is that that's just one tool. Like using our words is just one tool. This ongoing consent, mm. we can use our words during it, you know, just there, that feels good. Yeah, just there, a bit lighter, a bit softer, a bit faster. Um, how's this? That feels great. You know, that kind of thing that we talk about through sex. When I mention this to young people in school, they get really cringe about it because it's the first time someone has ever talked about sexist frankly but anyway um but the other thing that we need to do is to do this like embodied sex uh, embodied sexual communication yeah so it's like noticing what's going on with our bodies noticing what's going on with the other person's body that is where we're really getting a sense of uh what's going on for the other person you know we all know when we've had a bad mm. handshake or a bad hug right we all know if someone's kind of uh gone a bit um, if someone's put their, their arms down by their side and they've they've kind of um, frozen up a little bit, we know that they weren't really a hugger, and and we kind of we could have known that during. Mm. Uh, or if someone kind of pulls that, you can read that non-verbal communication. Exactly. Right. So how do I how by slowing down and really noticing what's going on with our bodies and how our bodies are interaction uh, interacting with each other and being present in that moment, then we're practicing embodied ongoing consent. Elsie Whittington's written really well about this in her paper about this, uh, about consent continuums. Uh, if you Google Elsie Whittington consent continuums, her paper will come up. It's really good. But this kind of slowing everything down and trying to be with the other person in that moment makes sex more consensual. It also increases the capacity for sex to potentially be pleasurable. Mm. And I think that non-verbal cues, but non-verbal communication, you know, we know that nonverbal communication is such a big part of how we connect with everyone, mm-hmm. from with our children to our partners mm-hmm. to the pe- other people on the bus yeah. <laughs> to our colleagues. To it infers we can infer interest, we can infer discomfort, mm-hmm. um, warmth, anger, anxiety. Like it, it, it just is a a part of being human. Exactly, and. The responsiveness, I suppose, and I guess the responsiveness plays a big part in sex. Mm-hmm. This is why the so embodied consent is is one of the tools that we're always using, right? But I think one of the reasons to go to circle back and to talk about why we're not interrogating or examining what consent is is because people have this idea that well, you just feel it, don't you? And without ever articulating, what we're doing is this embodied consent because we're noticing each other's bodies as well as the conversations that we're having and seeing whether we are both active, engaged participants in this or not. But not talking about that um, means that it then becomes um, this kind of like secret code word for like, well, you just kind of know when you're in a relationship. But it also um, is extremely uh, neurotypical. Right. So it by not talking about mm. it, it makes these assumptions that everyone is able to read each other's bodies in the same way. And we're not. So one of the reasons that I point this out and go into quite a lot of detail about how we pay attention to what's going on for us and the other person, both through throughout a greeting and eating a pizza with someone and having sex with someone is to point this out is to say, look, these are some of the things that you could look for. Um uh, if some if this is happening and this is happening, this might be happening. If you're unsure, check in. And so, by spelling that out, it's also um, better for everyone. It's more, I think, hopefully, more inclusive for everyone. But also, just important to say, you know, 
we're going to rely on having a bit of a chat beforehand about the things that we definitely don't want to do and some of the things we might be interested in doing. Then we're going to do them in an embodied way where we're noticing whether this is something we still want to do or not. We'll have a check-in if we're doubtful at any time. And then afterwards, we'll chat about how good it was uh, or how you know what we could do differently mm. next time. Like That is a good model, I think, for, for how we can do this. But it's about using all of the tools at our disposal um, to try to bring in more consent rather than just figuring out whether something was consensual to try in that moment to give as much freedom and choices to you and the other person and to your joint experience as you can and that really is Mm. that level of intimacy is um not level of intimacy that kind of intimacy is what makes for better sex i think as well Mm. and i guess what i'm thinking is i suppose you know being the devil's advocate or the, the the kind of other side of it is what what do you think we say to people who are like, oh, but it's just too much talking? You know, like, I just want to have sex and be in the moment. I don't want to have to think about all of this stuff like that much. You know, I think I think there's a sense of um, all of this being, like, quite overwhelming, isn't it? And it yeah. feels like so much to hold in mind or so much to have to do or so much to have to think about. And actually, that can scare the shit out of people because yeah. they're also then terrified about getting it wrong. So how do we make people feel empowered to not just go either way, which is, okay, well, I don't want to think about any of this stuff because it all feels too complicated or too hard or too much, or so I'm going to just pretend I haven't thought about it at all, or the other way, which is, whoa, this all feels like so scary and I'm so terrified about getting it wrong that I'm just not even going to go there. I think, firstly, like that is the kind of, when people are very defensive around consent, that's what they say, right? So it's like, oh, so we're meant to talk about everything mm. before we do it. Um, and and they immediately think, well, this is terrible. But also, it's because the consent narratives that we have, um, uh, particularly around like affirmative consent, aren't useful enough. This is the thing: is that it, that when consent just becomes about um, like culture and the and just like a, a message to be sent out, rather than well, here's how we can actually incorporate more consent into our lives, and this is how we might actually do it. Then people, of course, get resentful of it, and people. Um, feel that they can't do it. So obviously in my book, I've got Mm. lots of very simple, straightforward ideas about how we can do more of it. When we see consent on a continuum, rather than it just being, was there consent, was there not consent, then consent suddenly Mm. becomes, we can always have more of it. Okay. So it's like, what what kinds of communications can we have to ensure that there's more of it? But we also have to take into account that, you know, our sex education uh, if it has told us that sex is too awkward to speak about and that shame around sex is disproportionately um, shared out, uh, depending on our identity and our and, and, and us as a person, then for a lot of people it is going to be too difficult to talk about what it is that we might want. We might not have the vocabulary. We might feel just so ashamed and embarrassed about talking about it. Um, and there is a huge amount of you know shame around sex. Um, but this gets me to my criticisms of enthusiastic consent as well, like an, ent- an enthusiastic yes, because the, the narrative is that, you know, it's we only ever talk about heterosexual consent as well. That's the other kind of should story that we have. Um, and in my book, uh, I obviously don't do that. But the narrative is that, you know, is that the guy has to wait for a woman to enthusiastically say yes, or that you have to check for enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. And well, it's, it's putting a lot of emphasis on someone there who's been told throughout her entire life, you really shouldn't be enthusiastic about sex because these are the words you get called. This is the 
these are the material things that will happen to you if you do that. Um, uh, but also it doesn't account for ambivalences, which is the point I kind of really wanted to get to with this, is that there are a lot of like things that we might not, we, we either don't know if we like them or not. We don't. We might not even know if something is potentially something we might like. But also, even if we're doing something that we might that we in the past have liked, that doesn't mean we're going to like it again. So we've got to account for all of the the different ambivalences without within this. And I think one of the things from my, mm. my first book with Meg John is that what if we treated the the every time we have sex like it was the first time we had sex with someone? How would sex look then? Mm. And I think well, we'd be, we'd just try to be not distracted, be present in the moment and noticing what's happening and not to try to achieve anything, but just to be with that person, to be with each other. And I think the the any consent education has just got to come with the tools to help people to do it. And to, and that's what that's that's what I try to do. Rather than just like sending out the right message or um uh you know a, a, like telling people they should do something. Uh we have to we have to have the tools because we live in a society with so many should stories. It feels incredibly non consensual all of the time, you know. So, can mm. the agency and decision making power is going to be something that a lot of people have never even really thought about for themselves? Yeah, and I love this idea of tools because for me, you know, one of the things I like to see if I can offer in every episode and you know almost every kind of therapy session mm-hmm. I do with people is something actionable, mm. and. You said tools. I love this idea of it kind of like a continuum. Um, I think it's really helpful mm-hmm. and open and allows for the individualization of this whole thing um, and acknowledges the variety in not us just as humans, but our experiences. But what what other tools do we have? And, and I think the other thing I wanted to say about the continuum, if I go back a step, is something that we mentioned that we pro- is probably almost a separate conversation in itself but is this idea of consent in and out of relationships so if we're in a committed relationship that isn't just consent given for everything yeah, exactly. that happens within that relationship yeah. and I think that's an important thing but um we talked about tools the Betty Martin's wheel of consent mm-hmm. um is one that is very popular and kind of well-known in the therapy space and is framed as a diagram for what happens when two or more people make an agreement about touch. Mm -hmm. And I guess I would just love to know from you the pointers, obviously your book, Mm -hmm. um, but the pointers for what tools people can look for that you think offer this open continuum base Mm -hmm helpful actionable way of thinking about consent mm-hmm. i guess i think my main approach would be to think about um all of the different things that are available to you that you that that you could do uh in sex or actually in anything else but think about all the different kinds of sex that are out there think about which of those you definitely wouldn't want to do um and then think about and then cross those off your list it's like you know, this idea of like a, a yes, maybe, no list, which I have in my book, but mm. also um, on my website as well. But a lot of people can find it overwhelming. Mm, I've used that in therapy with clients as yeah, well. Yeah, but a lot of people can find it overwhelming. Again, you know, if we don't have the vocabulary, if we don't know what we like from sex because we've not done it yet, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's tricky. So how can we just kind of 
find a kernel of something that we can start with. Uh, and I guess so if mm. um, a useful way of thinking about it, this is to be like, well, we could use the should story for sex a little bit, you know, the idea of a uh, bit of foreplay and then it increasing in nakedness and then getting more genital. Um, but we could agree that we'll do that for a bit and then just stop. We can say, well, let's try a couple of things like um, snogging and humping and we'll do that for a while and see how see how it feels and then we'll check in and, 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 and try something else after. But also being explicit about... Um, about just noticing what's going on for the other person, like noticing uh, the sounds that someone makes, noticing someone's breathing, uh, noticing what they say, noticing how actively involved you are together, um, and then talking about it afterwards. And you can literally Mm. have this kind of approach for everything, not just sex. And so if you do it for everything and just normalise it as part of our lives, that's something that we do, and to... And to talk about that we're doing this as a process, then I think we can just start to um, to to have more of it, yeah. You know, and we can just get better at it. It is it is something we get better at with practice. Mm. And I guess it's making me think about questions like, how did you find that? How was that for you? Or did you enjoy that? Or like, it's even just, I guess I'm thinking about it in terms of almost everything we do, from eating a meal to having a work meeting to. Yeah. I suppose the the checking in element feels um, feels like a big part of this conversation, and I think, yeah, I guess for me, one of the biggest things that I've wanted to do with these conversations, I guess, is just opening up perspective, mm. um, and the conversations I've had with you have definitely done that for me around consent because it feels, I guess, it also feels quite unlimited, like how we implement this thinking into different experiences will teach us something every time. Yeah, and I think just also like just paying attention to the process. Um, people think that mm. the process of doing something is is uh, ancillary to or less important than the content. And actually, when I think for most things, but particularly sex, the process is as important as the content. So it's... It is um, how you go about doing something is as important as the thing that it is that you're intending to do. And, you know, when we talk yeah. about um, when we talk about sex and intimacy and love, you know, the things that really give us that are are, are the processes. You know, it's like there's the you know, there's the difference between saying that you love someone and saying and, and getting married and the daily acts of love that happen that enable that to happen. Right. And so yeah. it's the it's the. It's the daily acts of consent, the daily acts of trust, the daily acts of kindness that are the important process in in all of that. They are all processes, um, and so if we see consent as an important process that that we do, not in order to get something, but it's just important in and of itself. That the feeling that someone yeah. else cares about, to what to what extent you're able to do the things that it is that you're wanting to do, and how we go about exploring this in a journey with someone is as as important as the thing we're doing if that makes sense Mm, no absolutely does and I think that's just such a good point to close this conversation on because I think we've we've gone through an exploration of the meaning of consent and it's you know what we're saying is a common assumption might be as you started this conversation with it's yes or no it's binary it's um and what you're actually saying is it's 
open there are numerous ways you can do it but there's the process of doing it and the practice of doing it and it being integrated I suppose I guess for me maybe the hope for the future is that it's integrated through practice and you know hopefully more naturally for future generations mm-hmm. as as something that just is the inverted commas norm mm-hmm. um and maybe that's the big the biggest shift we need to see um but just in your book can we talk about consent is out mm-hmm. um people can buy it from wherever they like to buy their books from um but you've also yeah. got sadly i've not seen it in a bookshop yet sadly but i hope to when bookshops open <laughs> again i'm gonna the first thing i'm gonna do is run in and see if they've got it and get very angry if it's not there <laughs> yeah that'd be nice. when we can go back into a bookshop but um so the book is obviously a great resource and i would definitely recommend it for mm-hmm. i mean everyone um but i think it's a, gr- a great thing to think for parents to feel clued up as well because i think one thing we see or you know at least in conversations with parents i have is the anxiety about getting it wrong can always hold us back from having the conversations at all. So for parents to feel equipped is really great mm-hmm. to be able to be a resource for our kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also have your website um, and an amazing Instagram, but please tell people where they can find those as well. I've got a few things to plug now. So <laughs> I have too many <laughs> projects. Um, so uh, my website for young people for over 14s and, you know, a lot of some adults read it as well, but uh, it's popular with uh, teenagers and people in their 20s. It's called bishuk.com. Uh, if you just Google Bish or anything to do with sex, I'm usually at the top hit for that. It's got lots of advice and info about sex relationships, our relationship to ourselves. It's pretty, it's pretty broad. There are hundreds of articles in there. Um, on Instagram, I'm at Bish Sex Ed for that, uh, and on Twitter at Bish Sex Ed. Um, I also um, run training courses for practitioners. I also have uh, around consent, but I also and anything to do with sex and relationships i also have resources for um uh, practitioners to download so any uh, rsc teachers or anyone delivering rsc relationships and sex education you can head to my website bishtraining.com uh, and lastly i also have my own podcast for adults called culture sex relationships uh which is a various mismatch of different kinds of um podcasts uh but that also includes the back catalogue of the meg john and justin podcast which i used to do with meg john where we have an awful lot of episodes around consent and sex and culture and society and gender it's like uh, we've got a lot of content about this there mm. and i could really recommend all of them Great. <laughs> i could safely say and i think the the other thing to say about a lot of your resources is they're illustrated mm-hmm. so for the people who feel like it's all reading and all hard work and all really dense it isn't you know I can honestly testify to the fact that they are illustrated and fun and colorful mm-hmm. and visual and interesting and it's absolutely a um effective way I think of conveying the sex education messages so I mean you know you know I'm a big fan so I should give a shout out to I should give a shout out to my illustrator uh for the book uh Fiona Macquarie um she did such an amazing job. Her illustrations in in, can, in, in camera talk about consent are amazing. So uh, go follow her work too, at Fuchsia Macquarie on uh, Instagram. Amazing. Well, we, we all will. And um, Justin, thank you so much for having the conversation with me. I think it's an important one. I'm really pleased we've had it. And for anyone who has more questions about this topic, absolutely head to 
Justin's book website um, and check it all out. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sexual Wellness Sessions. If you'd like to join us for more conversations, you can click subscribe on either Apple or Spotify podcasts. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review.